Hello everybody, it's Gary Stuckey with Real Music. Over the Thanksgiving holidays, you know, I've had a lot to be thankful for, but one of those things is being thankful to talk to one of the most talented guys ever in the history of music, the one and only Peter Asher. He's a producer, manager, singer, musician, actor, I mean, you name it, he's done it. So thankful to talk to him. If you haven't done it already, Google Peter Asher and check out everything. I mean, he's managed or produced albums by Linda Ronstadt, James Taylor, Cher, J.D. Souther, Bonnie Raitt, Dinah Ross, Robin Zander, Neil Diamond, Olivia Newton-John, Steve Martin, Robin Williams, just to name a few. He's won Grammy Awards uh, for Producer of the Year, 1977, uh, 1989 Producer of the Year, and 2002 Best Spoken Comedy Album. Uh, that's for Robin Williams, and uh, he's a CBE, Commander of the British Empire. I mean, just so awesome, man. Uh, and these days, he's been on tour with Jeremy Clyde of Chad and Jeremy, and uh, they got some shows coming up on November 29th and 30th at Dakota Jazz Club at Minneapolis, Minnesota. And on December 1st, that's my birthday, by the way, at uh, Old Town School, that's in Chicago, Illinois. So here's the interview. Here's Peter Asher. You know, recently I saw you online on Instagram, on Steve Perry's Instagram page and Olivia Harrison's page, and you were at her book party. And I saw you and I was like, yeah, you know, I need to interview this guy, Peter Asher. And I just want to say it's an honor to speak to you today. Well, thank you. You're so welcome. Well, first of all, I want to ask you about your acting. Uh, I read you were an actor. So how did you get started doing that? Uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I, you know, both my sisters and I got signed up by an agent, um, and, and we all actually acted a bit back then. My first film I did when I was eight. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I, I enjoyed it. And Claudette Colbert played my mother, which was, which was, uh, exciting to us. She was a, a real movie star. And uh, yeah, and then I did a bunch of the old Robin Hood television series and whatever stuff. I enjoyed it. I did that until until really I just started taking school seriously and couldn't do it anymore. Right. Totally understand that. And so so how'd you decide you want to be a uh, musician? Um, I grew up in a musical household. You know, my mother, as you may know, was a classical musician. Right. My father was an amateur pianist, so I, I always <clears throat> grew up in, in very musical surroundings. And uh, I never did learn enough or practice enough to be a, a proper musician, um, which is probably why I ended up being a record producer. <laughs> I, I, um, I loved music, and then once I discovered rock and roll, that became my primary love, as it did to so many of us in, in Britain. Rock and roll identified everything we admired about America. So... So, you know, it was an American invention. Right. And uh, so eventually um, you uh, formed a band with uh, Gordon uh, Waller. So how did that start? We met at school, you know, and, and discovered that we both sang and played and, and tried doing it together just for, for the fun of it. And eventually ended up starting getting invited to come play at people's parties and and finally got some paying gigs, you know, we had a pub, we could do at lunchtime when you fit it in, and um, and so on. And we started getting clubs and coffee bars and pubs, and, and that became a thing. 
you got a record deal soon after. How, how did the record deal come about? We were playing in a place called the Pickwick Club, um, which was a, a sort of more upmarket, late-night eating and drinking club that a lot of the sort of celebrities of the day would hang out in the first time I met Michael Caine, for example, and, you know, he was a young, handsome actor um, and people like that. And so it was, it was a good place to play. And one night after we did our sh show, we were just the two of us with acoustic guitar sitting on bar stools. Um, one night after we did the show, he, this guy came up and introduced himself as Norman Newell, said he was a and uh, our guy from EMI Records, and they would like to sign us, and, and they did. Awesome. And the rest is history, as I say. Uh, so, uh, and you got a uh, your first hit song um, was written by Paul McCartney and John Lennon. Uh, so, how did that come to be? Well, it's kind of a long story. I mean, you, me, you probably know some of the story, but mm -hmm. you know, when when we'd all taken up acting. My sister Jane ended up taking acting very seriously and being turned out to be very good at it. And, you know, unlike me, you know, where I ended up taking school sort of seriously, she quit school at about 16 and became an actor full-time and became, you know, a successful working actor, which she is to this day. And and back then, you know, she became sort of a movie star. So she was, in that context, invited to go and see this band, uh, The Beatles. And Little La Fosse was being made about, and, you know, the girls were all going crazy and screaming, and their, their first record was a hit and so on. And she was invited to go and see them at a London concert, their first, actually, in London, and and uh, write a piece, because she was known to be a music lover as well as a celebrity. And she uh, she was happy to do that. She went and saw the show, thought they were amazing, and, and, and she was taken backstage to meet them all afterwards. And she liked them, they liked her, and uh, one of them liked her in particular and laughed her out. So that's how she ended up going out with Paul McCartney for a number of years. Wow. And that meant that he was over at our house a lot. Um, he would you know, come over for meals or whatever and bring his laundry to my mom to do and stuff like that. So he couldn't have any boyfriends too. And, <laughs> um, so um, uh, he stayed with us for about two years. And that meant that I'd heard... You know, I got to hear some of the songs he'd written. Well, Without Love was actually a song he'd written a couple of years earlier. And he, when I heard it, he explained that it was an unfinished song that the Beatles were not going to record because John didn't think much of it. He, didn't, he thought the only line of lyrics, please lock me away, was kind of ridiculous. Wow. And, and uh, so uh, I liked the song. So after we got this record deal and we were looking for songs, uh, that song occurred to me and I went back to Paul the following evening and asked him if we could have a go at it since they weren't going to do it. It was, wasn't finished at that point. He just had a couple of verses and that was it. And uh, he said, yes, by all means, we're not doing anything with it, you can have it. And um, I had to prevail upon him to finish it, you know, to write the bridge that it needed, which he did. And uh, so that we went on the list for our first recording session. And by the end of the session, no one was in any doubt but that that was going to be our first single, and it was right, and uh, and it was big. Uh, so so later, did John did he feel bad? Did he have regret about not recording that song after it became so popular? No, no. Uh, <laughs> people get, get somehow under that misapprehension that they would kind of go, "Oh, we should have done it." Not at all. I mean, 
they took their career as a songwriter very seriously. Yeah. So to have a hit as a songwriter for them was was fantastic and in a way almost easier than having a hit themselves. What they wanted, of course, was both, which is exactly what they got. So, you know, it's it's the same when, you know, the World Without Love went to number one in America and, and knocked one of their records off to number one. Or they did, you know, knocked right. it off. It's not the way. Um, people go, oh, didn't they feel bad about that? And the answer is, no, I mean... No, no record stays number one forever, and when That's you right. eventually slide down, what better than to be replaced by a song you actually wrote? That's true. You're still making money out of it. That's a that's a good point. Um, so uh, after you know the success of everything kind of hit you, did did you ever were you up there on stage one day and and when all that hit you, did you go, wow, this is it? You know, did, did it kind of come to you, or how did it how did that work out? Uh, well, no, I mean. The funny part is, when you're young, you take that kind of success for granted. Yeah. We didn't. It didn't occur to us um, how remarkable it was. You know that oh, we formed a little duo. Oh, we got some gigs in clubs. Oh, you know we got signed by a record company. Oh, a record came out and people liked it. And oh, it went to number one. Right. You kind of go. Now I realize that each of those circumstances were a million to one chance. You know that there were all kinds of other people trying to do the same thing and not successful. So. Uh, well, I didn't realize how lucky we were, or, or whatever, you know, uh, any of that. So when you're young, you kind of go, "Oh, cool! Look, right. our record's a big hit." Um, but as I say now, looking back on it, of course, I realized that each of those circumstances was uh, remarkable. Sure, I'm sure they were. Um, and after after uh, the the uh, the group uh, finished, uh, you you started working over at Apple Records and. Uh, which is the Beatles label, of course, and the, and there was a guy named James Taylor uh, that you did you really believe in James? How, how did that start when uh, you kind of discovered James? Didn't you? I, I, I could be I could be said to have discovered James. Yes, in a sense, um, he was a friend of a guitar player I knew very well in New York who pl- I'd played with extensively, called Danny Korchmark, and uh, so Danny gave James. Uh, James was coming to London uh, after a band he was in broke up. And uh, uh, Danny Korchmar, who was his childhood friend, gave him my phone number and said, oh, I have a friend in London um, I used to play with. Uh, um, give him a call if you're there. So James called me up and introduced himself, and I invited him over. And, yes, I was dumbstruck by how remarkably good his singing, his playing, and his songwriting and his intellect overall were, and I continue to be amazed by that. And, you know, we remain great friends on that basis. Awesome. So, uh, yeah, and I, I said, look, it's a strange coincidence, but I've just got this new job. I'm the head of A&R for a new record company. I can find people, you know, would you like a record deal? He said, yes, please. And uh, so that was that. So, it, I would, you know, it was a combination of good luck and, and yes. Wow. People ask, was, were you, did you initially know how good he was? The answer is yes. Did I expect him to be cover of Time magazine? Huge. No. <laughs> did I think that he was going to sell out the folk clubs and be the next next big thing in the folk world, as they called it then, right. what would now be called singer-songwriter world? Right. Um, yes, I did. Right. So amazing. And I had, wow. So I had no hesitation. The reason I moved to America was that, you know, James and I agreed after we left Apple that I would become his manager. and and so uh, I knew his career was going to be based in the U.S. Sure. That's so awesome. Awesome story. Uh, and, of course, uh, 
you had some help with a lady named Linda Ronstadt, right? And uh, how was yes. how was she like uh, to work with and everything back in the day? Linda's Linda's brilliant. She's one of the most remarkable women I know. Um, she's probably the finest singer it's ever been my privilege to work with. And in addition to that, turns out to be uh, you know an extraordinary woman of intellect and taste and. I cannot speak highly enough of her as a as a friend and uh, as a singer. So awesome! So you you had a lot of success. You know, you just happened to work with two of the best ever, right? And uh, so yeah. sold a lot of albums and uh, multi platinum success. I yeah. mean, how was that yeah. for you as a as a producer and a manager? How did how did you soak all that in? It was great. I mean, uh, I I don't know. I, you know, I don't have a profound psychological reaction <laughs> to it. I mean, you know. It, was I delighted? Yeah, sure. You know, sure. Of course, and and yeah. I mean, when they put me on the cover of Rolling Stone, which they'd never done with a producer or manager before, it just was all good. You know, was I happy about that? Yes, you bet. That's awesome. Yeah, that's 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 great. Um, so, what's the secret of being a, a great uh, producer? A great client, no question. Okay. Um, you know, same with management. You know, people go, "What? How do you become a great manager?" You answer, "You you sign." You know. A great client. I I was asked to in, induct into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame the first two managers who were ever inducted into the Hall of Fame, and not surprisingly, they were Brian Epstein, who managed the Beatles, right. and Andrew Lou Goldham, who was the Rolling Stones' first manager. Awesome. So, duh, you know, that's that's how I became <laughs> a brilliant manager. That's it. Cover the Beatles or the Stones. Wow. And for me, of course, that was discovering James and then. Sure. Yeah, that's so awesome. You- I've been looking at the list. There's so many people that you've either produced or managed. And I was looking like Cher, uh, producing yeah. her albums. Was she? How was she to work with? Great. No, Cher's really hardworking, organized. You know, um, determined. And she, you know, when you look at her career, the fact that she's been successful as an actor and as a singer, and then as an actor again, you know, she'll win a Grammy, and then go back and win an Oscar. Right. Um, she's exceptional. That's that's awesome stuff. Um, well, you you went on to become a senior vice president of Sony, so you're like jumping yeah. and you're you know you're moving up and everything like that. So, so how did that work out for you for Sony? Well, it was interesting. You know, you um, uh, I, you know Tommy Mottola, who was running Sony at the time, asked me to come and join the company. I was there about eight or nine years, I think, and uh, um, it was fascinating. You know, it's a different culture, but obviously being in a big um, giant company like that. I wasn't particularly keen on all the, the political, you know, juggling that went on with people vying for positions and power and stuff, right. you know, just like in a TV show or something. But it, but uh, uh, some good records got made and, and, you know, Sony obviously is a very important and influential label. So I learned a lot working there, including everything we as managers believed about record companies, both the good and the bad, all turned out to be true. Right. That's right, and uh, so you. But you also you work. Uh, you're managing outside of music too, right? Uh, well, I, I, a couple of people, not specifically music, but I ended up helping out for a year or two. Yeah, you know, I was noticing. I think Pamela Anderson was one of them. I think. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Pretty cool stuff. She was a neighbor, and uh, she asked me some help with some stuff, and I was delighted. So that's good. Like and uh, and I was noticing. Uh, uh, Buddy Holly is a is a name that sticks out. So, what what some of your work with uh, uh, 
Buddy Holly projects and things like that. I love Buddy Holly. Yeah, I mean, Gordon and I were huge Buddy Holly fans. And, uh, you know, when I, you know, he was, first of all, he was the only pop star who wore glasses, which made him cool to me. That's right. Because he could actually be a bit nerdy and wear glasses and still be a a pop star, which, you know, for some reason resonated with me. And and, uh, I loved his songwriting and his singing and everything. So... And, you know, Gordon and I had a huge hit with the Buddy Holly song called True Love Wave. Mm-hmm. And then I went on to have several Buddy Holly hits with uh, Linda Ronstadt. So, so yes, you know, Buddy Buddy's important. That's awesome. Um, and uh, I know you've, you've won Grammys and, and things like that, you know. So, so yeah. when you win awards like that and you think about the work that you've accomplished, do you kind of – sit back and, and, you know, think about it? Or you just kind of, like you said earlier, you just kind of take it as it comes and, you know? Well, somewhere in between, I suppose. I mean, it's, it, you know, one can take these things too seriously because there's all kinds of incredibly important records that never did win Grammys. But but at the same time, is winning more fun than losing? You bet it is. Right. So, um, sure. You know, you enjoy it when it happens. And uh, so... For all the years of, of being a musician and being a manager, producer, would, do you have a favorite thing to do? You like doing it all? I like. I, I, you're right. I mean, I particularly like the fact that I get to do it all. But if I had to choose, it would be a product producing. It would be the studio. And and during those times, like if, if I had to restrict myself to one. Thing. Oh sure. Did you? Uh, whenever you were focusing on uh, producing, how did you kind of decide? I want to give up the uh, music for a while and uh, do the producing and managing things like that. Focus on that. You mean give up performing? You mean? Right. Did oh, you? I mean, did you? Did you kind of take a break from that as you back? You know, when you started managing and things like that, did you kind of yes. take a break? Okay. Yes. I mean, when I was concentrating on James and stuff, yes, I I didn't perform. Then um, Gordon and I got back together some twenty-seven or something. I think it was about twenty-seven years later. And did some shows and that, and then I got back into performing then, and I still have a show that I do, you know, on my own, um, uh, or and, and sometimes with my friend Jeremy Clyde, um, which is a show we have coming up next week. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I did stop performing for quite a while because I was very busy as a manager. Yeah. Well, well speaking of uh, Jeremy Clyde, tell me about that relationship and how you started and. Uh... And everything. Well, as you probably know, there were two two duos in the British Invasion, Peter and Gordon and Chad and Jeremy. And um, we've always been friends. And people would frequently confuse us with each other because it is quite a coincidence. I mean, the, in each case, the duo has the, the tall, handsome one who sings the low part and the short, nerdy one who wears glasses and sings the high part. So right. we, we, we would with strange similarities. Right. And, you know, Gordon died... Uh, thousand years ago, whatever it was, and and then Chad sadly died, you know, more recently. So at a certain point, Jeremy and I looked at each other and went, well, let's, you know, maybe we should try and figure out something we can do together. So that it's Peter and Jeremy, and we get to do both sets of it, and uh, that's what we did. Awesome. And I know you enjoy, and you still love doing it after all these years. So, so tell Yeah, me- I do. Well, Jeremy's an actor, too, so right. we get to, you know, we get to do a bit of back and forth on stage and stuff. It's fun. Um, well, I won't hold you. I know you're a busy guy, but, you know, looking over your career, and is there anything that you haven't done yet 
that you would still like to do? Uh, not that I can immediately think of, but I, I, I'll know I'll know it when it happens. You know, it'll probably be something completely unexpected. But uh, yeah, I, I I don't know. You know, I've, I I um, I wrote a radio show now. I wrote a book. I did this. You know, so uh, things keep popping up, and and uh, I'll you know no doubt something new will come along. Well, I appreciate you talking to me today, and uh, it's been an honor. And uh, oh yeah, one more thing. Uh, I know you were, weren't you like uh, a was it CBE? You're like a uh, yes with with the uh, a commander of the British Empire, right? Yes. How cool is that? I mean, it's cool. It was fun. You get to go to Buckingham Palace. And, wow. You know, they uh, give you this very nice piece of bling, and uh, it's very exciting. That's so awesome, uh, and I know that 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 means a lot to you. And uh, oh yeah, one more thing. Uh, Austin Powers. Is it true that Austin Powers was based on you? The look of Austin Powers okay. is based on some photographs of me back in the day. Wow. The character was based on several people apparently okay. combined, but um, uh, so but but there are some photographs of me back then with the bad teeth and the glasses and so on <laughs> and and the haircut. <laughs> but um, it's, it has been acknowledged that, that the look of Austin Powers took something from photos of me. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Well, yeah. oh, well, thank you for uh, talking to me today, and I'll I'll be building up your uh, shows coming up and everything. So, like I said, so honored to talk to you. You've accomplished so much, right. and I appreciate thank you. you. I enjoyed it, and um, forgive me for for not being, uh, you know, not realizing who you were when you called. <laughs> in the middle of the interview, what Gary? Who? Yeah, <laughs> who's? You. Hey, I get it all the time. No, thanks a lot. I appreciate you. Okay, thank you very much. Enjoy all right. it. All right, have a thanks. good day. Thanks for listening to another episode of Real Music. I appreciate you so much. If you'd like to donate to this podcast, you can do so by clicking on the support button and giving whatever amount that you feel like. I appreciate it. And uh, I'll be bringing you more and more awesome interviews so just you know stay tuned and uh, share this if you will and check out my youtube channel real music with gary stuckey and subscribe and uh tell all your friends that the music is real i'm keeping it real right here on real music and until next time everybody do that keep the music real <laughs>